Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, the coronavirus is highlighting existing faults and fissures in U.S. society. Stark evidence of government priorities and their impact is coming fast and furious. $1.5 trillion are available instantly for loans to banks, but there's no plan to protect incarcerated people in jails, prisons, or migrant detention centers. Congress can't seem to act on assistance that reaches all the people who need it, and Jeff Bezos, the one with $111 billion, wants whole food workers to share their sick leave. Immediate tests for celebrities without symptoms? Yes. Reconsideration of devastating sanctions on Iran and Venezuela? Absolutely not. It's a crime scene that's setting up social economic justice work for the next many years and calling for dogged, humanistic reporting that doesn't ask what questions this all raises, but instead demands better answers. But first, we have to get through it. And as we now sit, eyes glued to every media, journalists carry a great responsibility to translate evolving information, projections, and recommendations into accessible news that reflects appropriate gravity without being unhelpfully alarmist. No one asks reporters themselves to have all the answers, but what about the clarity and intelligence with which they conduct the conversation? We'll talk about coronavirus coverage with FAIR editor Jim Narikas. Also on the show, among myriad issues COVID-19 has put a fine point on, why does the United States value a private company's ability to make millions off a drug so much more than the ability of sick people to get life-saving medicine? Like many things, it doesn't have to be that way. We talked about other ways to think about medicine last September with Dana Brown, who works on the intersection of health and economics as director of the Next System Project. We'll hear that conversation today on the show. That's coming up, but first a quick look back at some recent press. It's telling how many media outlets think what the moment calls for is slow cooking recipes and glimpses inside celebrity homes, how certain they are that their audience's main problem is boredom. There are valuable exceptions, of course. BuzzFeed reported March 18th on retail workers finding themselves in the crosshairs of the virus and all the public health information that tells them what they should be doing, and their owner's insistence that showing up and making money is all that matters. Albert Samaha's March 18th report is distressing. An employee at a sunglass hut in a mall in Minnesota says, I see a lot of elderly people walk the mall in the morning. They wouldn't be coming in if none of the stores were open. Gap workers bring sanitizers from home. Starbucks says they won't use reusable cups, but feel free to line up close together to get your coffee. A Spencer's outlet sent out coupons for in-store purchases that expire at the end of the month. So when you read about what companies are doing, remember there's no company. There are workers and owners, and their interests are not the same. 
And when you hear their CEOs announce what their policies are, it's best to dig a little deeper. The workers BuzzFeed listened to didn't just talk about a lack of paid sick leave, but employers' failure to give them cleaning supplies to wipe off, for example, the plastic cases a GameStop worker was handing out to customers. I can't clean anything in my store, the manager said. I can't ensure my team isn't carrying it right now. I can't guarantee I won't accidentally contribute to some of my favorite regulars who are highly susceptible and end up making them sick. GameStop did not respond to a request for comment. A Godiva Chocolates employee in Illinois said that when they asked managers why their store remained open, quote, their response was that since we're an outdoor mall, the germs don't apply to us and that the mortality rate is too low to concern them, close quote. Godiva Brass wouldn't answer questions, but blah, blah, that the health and well-being of our employees and customers are our highest priority. Starbucks workers, including those with dry coughs and those just off international cruises, were told they couldn't take paid sick leave, despite what you may have read about Starbucks policies, because those policies require proof of a positive test result for coronavirus or proof that the employee had been directly exposed to someone who'd been specifically diagnosed with coronavirus. Workers were told they'd get paid leave if the company shut down their whole store, but an employee told BuzzFeed that when their mall location was shut, they were just reassigned to another one nearby. We're hearing talk about a new respect for retail workers as a silver lining of this crisis, but that won't mean anything if it doesn't come with actual interrogation of their bosses. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. A public health crisis will bring many things to light. It sinks in how important just having a doctor is, or a computer at home, or neighbors to check on you. It highlights the interwoven nature of our lives and our utter reliance on people not generally accorded much social capital. If you're looking, you see the need to protect all of us in order to protect any of us. For others, a crisis like the COVID-19 pandemic means an opportunity to grab something or to blame someone. Some seem to feel that they can fit the reality of the crisis to suit whatever ideological point they'd like to make. In New York, the mayor and the governor can't decide who's in charge of the city. Meanwhile, people want... Not a guarantee that every piece of information they're getting is perfect. People understand what an evolving story is. But they would like to feel that the space where this life-or-death conversation is taking place is free of concerns other than getting up-to-date, health-protecting information from people who have reason to know, not just reason to talk. So how are news media handling their responsibility in this critical time? Jim Narikas is editor of FAIR.org and FAIR's newsletter Extra. He joins us now in studio. Welcome back to Counterspin, Jim Narikas. It's good to be here. We're recording on March 19th. Things are changing all the time in terms of the pandemic, our knowledge of it, and the responses to it. Everyone's learning on their feet, and we can expect that what we heard a week ago might not hold. 
But reporters, as we say at FAIR, should not be gamblers. Their job is not to bank on things going a certain way, report from that assumption, and then just change course if they don't go that way and act like nothing happened. It matters too much, to put it simply, for people to be speaking beyond their actual knowledge, shall we say, offering what sounds right to them or what some are saying. You see some of that confusion affecting the core data, if you will, about what the U.S. should be doing right now. Yeah, this is a brand new disease. Uh, We are still learning about it, and there's a lot we don't know. But there are things that are apparent from the, the course that the disease has taken so far. And I think we do know enough to make some assumptions about what kind of danger we're in. We do know that the disease spreads exponentially. Uh, We know that you can give it to people even before you have symptoms. And so far, it looks like about 20% of people who catch it need to be hospitalized. And when you put this information together, you quickly see that uh, you can't allow a disease to keep spreading exponentially because we don't have hospital beds for 20% of the population. We, we don't have hospital beds for 1% of the population. So we need to not just slow down the disease, but stop it if we're not going to have a health crisis like, like we haven't seen in our lifetimes. And yet that advice that we should try to slow down the, the course of the epidemic is the advice that a lot of media outlets have been trying to give people what they seem to think is reassurance. Yeah, Charles Ornstein, a longtime health reporter, had a piece saying, stop comparing it to the flu. People keep saying, it's kind of like the flu. You know, he said no public health experts are saying that, but that seems to be a go-to media analogy. I understand the need to have a frame of reference, but sometimes you just have to say, this is a new thing. We This is just itself, you know, and we need to pay attention to what it actually is. Yeah, the, the flu uh, puts... 0.05% of people in the hospital. And this puts 20% of people in the hospital. So yeah, it is, is quite more serious. Well, we're seeing Democrats refusing payments to folks, you know, being outflanked on the left by Republicans. It's not just this deficit, you know, obsession. There's like this idea of wasting effort, of wasting largesse, you know, like somehow it's like a magical thinking. If we keep our response small, maybe the problem will be small. Like, you know, let's just be moderate about it. And it's just not appropriate, right? I think that a lot of the advice that is being issued about the epidemic and a lot of the assumptions that are being made about how the the epidemic can be fought are based on the idea that you just can't shut down the economy, that the economy must go on the business must go on no matter what. And you start from that assumption and then, well, what can we do? That's why people are talking about slowing down the epidemic is that unless you keep non-essential people from going to work, there is no way to keep the the bulk of the, of the population. There does not seem to be any substitute for physically separating people to keep the epidemic from... Uh, multiplying, multiplying, multiplying. It's just too big an answer, you know. It's like uh, it, they just they're they're working backwards from what they're comfortable doing, you know, right. uh, to to what they will do. Well, I I did want to say, 
you don't have to be corny to think how far some leadership could go right about now, not paternalistic sanguinity, you know, but a sense from officials of of calm and of compassion. You know, what we have instead is Trump, no surprise, lying, denying, looking out for number one, and you have the Surgeon General admonishing the press to have, quote, no more bickering, no more partisanship, no more criticism or finger pointing, close quote, in news coverage. So obviously the White House is not going to be the gold standard for information on on coronavirus or, or, or even a clearinghouse for useful information. How do we think about sources? What are you looking at or what are you looking for as all these various reports come at you? I have been trying to look at reports from places like the CDC, from the World Health Organization, uh, from medical journals that are trying to keep on top of this. You know, looking at the Lancet, the New England Journal of Medicine, to see what they're saying it's very difficult to do solid double-blind research in the face of a global health emergency. But I think that, that the people who are on the front lines, they, they have to try to get a handle on this. They have to know what they're, they're dealing with. And we can look at their tentative answers and make some decisions about what we have to do as, as a community in order to, to stop this pandemic. Well, we heard that in Italy, along with grocery stores and pharmacies, they're keeping newsstands open because information is seen as, you know, a staple. I have mixed feelings about that (laughs) with regard to U.S. media. But no, no, there's been some excellent reporting, um, we should acknowledge. But I think it's showing us this crisis, again, is showing us how media outside establishment media are sort of getting in front of the press corps in some ways, you know, Italians uploading videos to themselves 10 days prior, as well as, you know, videos to other countries, including the U.S. It seems like another reason were one needed to care about Facebook and Twitter's weird management and censorship rules and our ability, which we see at times like this, how crucial our ability is to talk to one another around the establishment media. Yeah, I I do think that it's been very valuable to have social media, uh, which is why it was uh, so disturbing when Facebook started informing people that their posts about the coronavirus were spam and pulling them down. Then it seemed like this was a result of the social media companies being shorthanded because they're largely based in the Bay Area or in near Washington State, where places that have been hit particularly hard by the coronavirus and have imposed, you know, shelter-in-place rules. And so they're shorthanded and and have had to turn over their moderation systems to autopilot. And the autopilot is making some weird decisions. Though then the, the vice president, Facebook's vice president for integrity, as he's called, announced that that wasn't it, but he didn't explain what it was. He said it was a bug, a weirdly timed bug, I guess. It does point to the vital necessity of these systems of communication that we've developed and the danger of putting control of these systems in a few private hands. Well, just finally, there's so many stories here beyond even the science of it. You know, when you see Jeff Bezos, you know, telling Whole Foods workers to share their medical leave, 
you realize these capitalists really mean it. You know, this is the system they uh, they support all the time. This is what that system looks like at a time like this. And I kind of wonder how people are going to go back to accepting like, well, okay, you can die in the street as long as you're not contagious, you know, <laughs> um, paid sick leave. What What's that? Debt forgiveness? Who told you that? That's assuming we come out the other side. But I do think problems are are showing up that aren't going to disappear and reporters are going to have their work cut out. I feel like part of how modern capitalism works is creating a, an artificial sense that everyone is on the edge of disaster and that you had better show up for work because otherwise you'll lose your health care. You won't be able to, to make your mortgage payments or your rent payments. And that is how you know, salaries are kept low, wages are kept low, and profits are kept high. And now, faced with a real disaster, we're going to have to feed people. We're going to have to leave people in their shelter. Uh, We're going to have to provide medical care, regardless of whether people have jobs or not, because unemployment's going through the roof. The economic system has got to shut down. It's not an option to leave the economy running while we fight this virus. That, that is not a possibility. Um, and so we're, we're going to have to provide food for people. We're going to have to provide medical care for people. And the the demonstration that that, that can be done without the handholding of the business owners, I think will send a powerful message to people that maybe those business owners are are not so crucial as they would like us to believe. We've been speaking with Jim Narikas. He's the editor of FAIR's Newsletter Extra, as well as our website, fair.org. Jim Narikas, thank you for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thanks for having me on. What's depraved, but not surprising, if you guessed Donald Trump's maneuvering around a COVID-19 vaccine, well, no points, really. German media reported that Trump tried to bribe German scientists into giving him exclusive rights to a potential vaccine they were working on. While Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar was making clear that they try to make vaccines affordable, but, quote, we can't control that price because we need the private sector to invest, close quote. Perverse as that is, it fairly reflects the setup of our pharmaceutical system, where we rely on patent monopolies and the profit motive to support public health. And as Institute for Policy Studies' Josue de Luna Navarro noted recently, if you think companies profiting off coronavirus is bad, buckle up for more climate crisis, with exacerbation of other health threats, because a sick planet means a sick public. There are alternatives. We talked about one in September of 2019 with Dana Brown, director of the Next System Project. The incentives and the fiduciary duty of corporations is to maximize profit for their shareholders. And I guess the question is, is that in the best interest of the public, especially when we're talking about health? So we see high prices and recurring shortages and declining innovation, but also these issues about drug safety and mismarketing. That's kind of the natural outcomes of an industry that is oriented around the singular goal of maximizing profit. So 
I think that to get different outcomes, we actually need a different design. And that's why we've been working on a model for a structural alternative, which is public ownership in the pharmaceutical sector across supply chains. And as you say, the idea of turning Purdue into some sort of public trust has come up in this litigation. But it's a little odd. It sort of relies on the the company continuing to operate and continuing to make profit off opiates, which, of course, some people need. But, right, they can't make the same profit if we're going to try to to stem the tide of the epidemic. And then we're going to somehow use that profit to, to make things right. And I guess the question is, there's never been more momentum on this issue of holding drug corporations to account. Can we use this opportunity to really transform the industry and make sure that it works for us? So you're talking about really a, a public option. Uh, how, how, how would that work, a public option in pharmaceuticals? I think there are probably several different structures that it could take here in the United States. We've done some work in collaboration with others and proposed one way for that to work with publicly owned enterprise at the national state, and even local level that span research and development, manufacturing, and wholesale distribution. And a lot of this work comes from other countries, looking at case studies of other countries where they're already doing this. There are a number of countries around the world, from Brazil to Argentina, India, China, Thailand, Sweden, that have uh, public companies in some or all of the parts of the pharmaceutical supply chain. So this can be done, and people have been talking about it a bit for the United States. And I think it really brings home the point that there are alternatives and that when something is in the public interest and when it has to do with public health, there is a way that we could provide for that from the public sector. And even, you know, it could spur further competition with the private sector when that's needed. You know, we always hear from media and media channeling other folks, you know, when it comes to why we can't have generic drugs or why we need to have private companies making billions of dollars, we hear, well, without that profit incentive, no one's going to be inspired to to do the research and to create new drugs. But that doesn't hold water, does it? Well, it's an interesting argument, and it makes sense on the surface, but I'd say two things. One is that the National Institutes of Health, a a public entity, already funds the vast majority of the basic scientific research that underpins pharmaceutical drug development and has for quite a long time. In fact, it's one of the largest funders in the world of pharmaceutical drug development. But also looking at places like Europe, there are a lot of countries in which it was illegal to patent drugs and medical products and even chemicals until fairly recently, but they had thriving pharmaceutical industries anyway. So, yeah, I I don't quite buy that argument anymore. And I think that, you know, if we have public companies into which we're funneling those public dollars, there are a lot of efficiencies. There are a lot of gains that we could get because we wouldn't be negotiating rebates and (laughs) the outcomes would really be better for all of us. And, you know, it's it's not about sticking it to the rich guy, you know, or, or damping down innovation. We're talking about health and humanity here. I mean, whatever you think we should do, I don't see how you can maintain the idea that the system is working fine when we have people dying from trying to ration their insulin because they can't afford it. Absolutely. And insulin is a really excellent example because insulin was developed in a public lab in Canada and the scientists who discovered it, it sold their U.S. patents for $1 a piece. 
and stated explicitly at the time that they wanted to maintain affordability forever. So it's a drug that, while developed by public dollars, has somehow been captured and now is feeding corporate interests, as you say, to such an extent that we have 20-somethings dying in the richest country in the history of the world because they can't afford to fill their prescription. But there are also classes of medication like antibiotics, for example, which you're supposed to take for a short period of time and are which are curative, where the industry has said, we have no incentive to develop new antibiotics. But as a country, we know that we're going to need new antibiotics. So again, there are places where I think the public can and should intervene for the public good, where industry has already shown, both in action and in their words, that they're not best placed to play the role. Well, you note in a recent piece that you co-authored with Isaiah Pool that the 1998 tobacco settlement, which folks might think is kind of an analog to this Purdue bankruptcy thing, you don't think that tobacco settlement should be the model here at all, do you? I think there are some positive things that came from that settlement, but I think we also live and learn and should also, as a country, always be striving to do better. Again, we have an unprecedented opportunity here because there's never been more attention on the ills of sort of profit-motivated pharmaceutical production and the multiple issues that we have. And we have an opportunity here to really transform the industry. We have an opportunity to assure long-term, affordable access to all essential medications if we take action now. Again, we're the richest country in the history of the world. We can do this. We effectively provide an awful lot of services from the public sector. I took public transportation to work this morning. We have a lot of public electricity and water, right? We know that this can be done. And I think it's, it's about not letting this opportunity slip past us. We've been speaking with Dana Brown, director of The Next System Project. They're online at thenextsystem.org, where you can find the full report, Medicine for All, the case for a public option in the pharmaceutical industry. Her piece on the issue, co-authored with Isaiah Poole can be found there as well as at newrepublic.com. Dana Brown, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by the Media Watch Group Fair based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find shows and transcripts on FAIR's website. That's FAIR.org. The website is also the place to sign up for FAIR's Newsletter Extra or our Action Alert Network. The show's engineered by Erica Rosado. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.